Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. My guest for this episode is NASCAR Hall of Famer and Fox Sports analyst, Daryl Waltrip. DW will be broadcasting the last race of his career this weekend at Sonoma Raceway, so I thought this would be an opportune time to catch up with a three-time Cup Series champion. During a career that stretches nearly five decades of being behind the wheel or the mic, Waltrip has been one of the most brash and oft-polarizing stars in NASCAR history. He also has long been one of its most quotable, and I think that largely has been forgotten over the past 19 years when he's become such a familiar background voice on NASCAR races. DW is among the best interviews in racing. For as outspoken and sometimes goofy as he can be, he also can be tremendously insightful and perceptive. In my preparation for this conversation, I was reviewing an interview that I did with DW at Daytona before the 2013 season. And I was astounded how many of the things that he predicted eerily came to pass over the next few years. As you'll hear him say in this conversation, hear me now, believe me later. This is the second time Waltrip is making an appearance on the podcast. His episode two and a half years ago was well received, and there was a lot of feedback from listeners who liked DW in this format. I hope they'll find the same in this conversation, which was typically wide-ranging and with a lot of trademark DW candor. He doesn't shy away from any topic, and that's something I always appreciated. Whether it's how NASCAR changed over the past two decades, why he feels it is sometimes overexposed, his level of garage engagement, his relationship with NASCAR executives, his biggest regrets on air, who might replace him in the booth, and how often you might see him at the track in the future, DW answered every question. For as long as I've covered NASCAR, he always has been an accessible and engaging interview. And I found him no different in this conversation, which, who knows, is maybe the last I'll have with him. We spoke over the phone on the Tuesday before his most recent broadcast at Michigan International Speedway, and we'll pick it up here. Let's just get started with what has changed the most, do you think, during your time in the booth about NASCAR broadcasting over those 19 seasons? I think our audience has changed quite a bit. I I think back to 2001 and how the sport was and the racing and the personalities and the crowds at the track were phenomenal. Uh, We were in a real growth spurt, you know, the sport was. Tracks were adding stands to accommodate the demand there was such a demand for our sport and tracks were putting in 30 40 50 60,000 seats to accommodate the the crowds that were showing up it was just a it was a fun time our ratings were high there were over five every week it was just a 
I, I don't, I, it, it's never easy. Nothing's ever easy as it looks, but certainly it made our job a lot easier having, uh, having the, the, the sport was so popular and people were hungry for it on TV. They were hungry to go to tracks. Uh, the personalities were just over the, you know, over the top. And it was, it was just, it was just a great time to be in the sport and, and really in the TV booth because it was, it was just, you know, everything was, everything was on the upswing, you know, and then it, about 2008, 9, 10, long in there, a lot of the things that we had taken for granted uh, kind of left us. And uh, all of a sudden where ratings were over five every week, we were struggling to get a rating over two every week. So uh, our audience shrunk, the crowd shrunk, uh, the competition was, on the track wasn't that great along the same period of time somewhere along in there you know the current stars that you and i you grew up watching are competing against they're all retiring and uh and you got a new bunch of kids coming on and it, it just it just was a dramatic change over how it started and and where it went to and just a, like overnight almost it just went from being the most popular sport on TV right next to NFL football to us struggling every week to just get a decent rating. So our audience changed, our sport changed, the drivers that we had always known, they, they changed. We had new drivers coming on the scene and it, it, and it hadn't changed. It, that hadn't stopped. It's that change, that weekly change. I think it's really made it difficult for all of us to do a job, to, to do a good job. Like we, like we feel like we need to. So when things were at their high water mark in those first five or six years that you were doing this for Fox, did you have it in the back of your mind that maybe it wouldn't last, that it, it couldn't last in some ways, that there would be eventually, like they always say NASCAR is cyclical, there would be some sort of erosion and regression to the mean? Well, only only from a driver's perspective. Uh, drivers drivers in about 10 to 15 year cycle. You'll be on top, you know, for a while. You have, an, I always like to say you may have an era, a 10-year era, where one guy dominates or maybe two or three guys dominate. But I never saw the downturn in attendance and and the downturn in ratings. And I never I, I never saw that coming. I don't I guess anybody did. Uh, you know, Brian France came on as a, as a leader of our sport, and he, he wanted to take a sport in a different direction. A stupid car tomorrow with a big old wing on the back and, just a lot of things that were so different than what we were accustomed to. And, uh, I, I think, I think in a lot of ways, I think we just abandoned our core. I thought we, you know, we started looking for fans in all the wrong places. And instead of taking care of the ones that made us faint, made us who we are, we, I think they felt abandoned and, um, we never were able to attract the audience, you know, the millennials, like everybody hoped we would. And, and, uh, we've struggled with that even up, to recently and I, I finally feel like things might turn around a little bit because I, even the leadership today is saying maybe we made some mistakes along the way and maybe we went in direction that, that we shouldn't have and, and we realize that and we're going to change course so I hope we bottomed out and uh, that now we can start to rebuild. What are the most encouraging signs you see now of maybe attracting that next generation of fans? Well, just just to acknowledge that leadership acknowledges that, you know, some of the things they were trying to implement, some of the things we were trying to do uh, weren't appealing to the, to the core of our sport. I think our average age of our audience is 55 years old. Our sport is a, a blue-collar sport. It's a working man's sport. And in no way am I putting anybody down. But it's it's the guy that goes to work in the factory every day. It's the guy that drives the truck up and down the highway. 
it's the guy that works a nine to five and comes home and he wants to sit on, you know, one on the couch on Sunday and watch the race. That's who we are. And, uh, I think somebody maybe they didn't, I don't know if they didn't like that demographic or we could do better. And, and I don't think anybody ever intentionally did anything to harm the sport, but I think people, they misjudged who the fan of this sport is and who supports it and who always has. And, I think those fans that were so important to us all through the years I just think they felt abandoned. And so, what do I, how do I, what do I think is better? In some ways, I think it's better. It makes me a little bit nervous uh, when I hear, start talking about hybrid cars and car, you know, 2021 cars going to be totally different than what we've seen in the past. I know we have to evolve and I know we can't sit still, but sometimes I think we take too big of bites at once. And some of those things I'm hearing, and I'm pretty sure that in most cases, those are trying to to attract other manufacturers because we only have three. And I know NASCAR would love it to, you know, if we had some other manufacturers involved. You know, I don't know what goes on behind closed doors, and I'm sure that they have a lot of meetings and about where we are today and where we're headed in the future. Uh, but some of the things I hear make me nervous, make me wonder, you know, is that is that really what we need to be doing, or is that the direction we need to be going in? But that remains to be seen, I guess. I think there's general consensus, DW, about the car. And obviously, NASCAR acknowledged the the car of tomorrow mistakes with the Gen 6. Some fans, though, have kind of pointed at the playoffs as being something that maybe led NASCAR the wrong way. I don't share that opinion. I think the playoffs have generally been a good thing. What's your take on that as something that obviously was different from the time you raced and was introduced at a time where I think popularity spiked the first few years of the playoffs, but obviously the last 10 or so things have been different. What's your take on that? I think sometimes we, uh, we are those of us in the sport think one way and what we think is good. And I'm, just, I'm not talking about drivers or owners or sponsors or even TV partners because, you know, we I think we all look at this sport one way, and I'm not sure the fan looks at it the same way we do. I think fans, again, back to the core, uh, the older fan, uh, I think I think they felt like that, you know, the guy that had the best performance in 36 races should be the championship, not, not guy that's, you know, uh, that can beat three other guys in the final race of the year to decide who the champion is. And I think a lot of things have caused that when NASCAR, in their discretion, decides that somebody can miss a number of races and still be eligible to ch- for the championship. I think a lot of people said there's just no way that could be right, and that's happened a couple of times. And the playoffs uh, and, and the segments, the stage racing, where you now know there's going to be a caution. So you kind of race toward those points in the race that changes the way you race, I think, in a lot of ways. I think there's still a lot of people, like myself, that want to see them drop the green flag and run four or 500 miles where they're going to run and uh, let the chips fall where they may. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like that now it's more made for TV, and, and, and rightfully so. And, and let me tell you, the reason I say rightfully so is I don't know how many track promoters I've talked to that said if it wasn't for TV money, we couldn't stay in business. It's not that TV, we we have very little input in where they go, how they go, or what they do when they get there. Uh, we're pretty much the victims of, they tell us, this is the way we're going to run this show, and then, you know, it's up to us to, to figure out how to make it work. But I think a lot of people think that stage racing is a product of TV. I think a lot of people think that the final race of the year where you one you got to beat three other guys to win the championship 
a lot of people think that's drama that was created for a TV market more than it was for a fan that goes to track and watches a race at the track. So there's just a lot of elements. There are so many things that I, and, 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 and I'm, I'm 72 years old and I hear the good, the bad, and the ugly every day. Uh, I have people that come to me and, you know, why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? And all the rule changes. And I don't like the drivers. My driver retired and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's exciting for me to, to go somewhere, have dinner or here at my house at a Bible study on Tuesday morning to have people tell me that they actually enjoyed the race. There was, they really enjoyed watching the race. We've had a couple that way. Uh, Charlotte was one of those races uh, that people seem to really enjoy. And that's a 600-mile race. It took five hours to run. But I think when the on-track product, when the racing is good and the competition's good and they don't feel like rates being manipulated, it just runs the way it runs, uh, I think people enjoy that. But there's not that many races that, that are like that anymore. Talked a lot about what you've seen change in NASCAR over the last 19 years, DW. What do you think has changed the most about NASCAR from a broadcasting, purely from how the race is presented on television 2001 to now? Well, certainly, you know, technology changes and it changes. It's changed in the garage. It's changed in the way NASCAR looks at things. Uh, it changed the way we, we, we put a, produce a race to go on TV. So, the, you know, better cameras, more sound, uh, helmet cams. We constantly, me and Barry and Ari, all of us, we constantly are trying to think of something we've never done before, a, a, a view that we've never seen before, um, a camera somewhere where there's never been one before, a sound that we've never heard before. You know, that's a constant battle that we all have trying to make the, the, the TV experience and watching at home uh, more like being there, if, if at all possible. So those are things that have just improved those are things that have enhanced year after year, uh, you know, whether it's a, a camera, a, a foot cam, a, a, a doggy cam at the side window, a <laughs> helmet cam, a bumper cam, a whatever cam. Uh, and then being able to talk to the athletes during the event, you know, after a stage, we dial up the winner. Uh, if there's a red flag, we can talk to several of the athletes, you know, the people in the race. So um, in, in a lot of ways, sometimes I think we've overexposed the sport. But it depends on where you're looking at it from. If you're a TV guy, uh, stage racing is great. If you're a TV guy and talk to an athlete during the race or during the competition, is great. Those are things that people seem to embrace. But there's a lot of things we do that are, are you know, more for TV than they are for anything. And, and, and we pay a lot of money to be able to do that. How do you think it's overexposed in some ways? Well, I just know from TV and, and the people that I've listen to uh, most of my career, whether it's Ken Squire or, or even Mike Joy, less is more, and we don't live in that, you know, that's just not how we operate. If you want to, uh, you turn on the TV after a race, we have post-race shows, and then you turn on the TV on Monday, and NBC has a show, and Fox Sports 1 has a show, and there's radio 24 hours. I, I just think that, and, and you have social media, and you have Facebook, and Twitter, and everybody's giving their two cents worth, and there's so much exposure, and if you win the race, a, a, a very significant race, NASCAR flies you to New York or L.A. or Chicago, and you got to be on every morning show. And I just don't see any other sport that does that. But you got to remember something: this, when I see these things, I always forget about we're not a self-sustaining sport. If we were able to take care of ourselves and sustain ourselves, we wouldn't have to do all that. But in order to get the money that it takes to run one of these teams today, that sponsor spending that kind of money wants 
to see his name and lights every day if he can. So it, it's 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 a tough environment to live in, and it's a tough environment to be successful in because there's two there's so many elements that you know that you win on Sunday, and that's just that's just the beginning. Now you win on Sunday, your sponsors happy, owners happy, NASCAR's happy, but then you got to go promote it all week till you get to the next. <laughs> One of the things that's most fascinating about NASCAR is that tug-of-war between all those different groups and constituencies, but I guess that's also what makes it so difficult at the same time. Well, I, but, yeah, but see, even the terminology today is drives me crazy. You know, it's it's not a sport anymore. It's an industry. Industry, right. And, 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 and fans aren't fans anymore. They're stockholders. You know, you have a fan council, and you have a, a owner's council, and you have a driver's council, and you have a sponsor's council. Every, you know, there must be... 25 different damn councils and then and everybody comes to the table and everybody's got a different opinion everybody's got a different voice and as as much as people didn't like bill france jr bill france is tough on that cigarette and tell you well i'm glad to hear how you feel i'm glad to know that's how you feel but this is how we're going to do it and we don't do that anymore we're we're in a constant perpetual oh somebody's upset we got to do something about it what's the best race you think you've ever called or been a part of a broadcast on Ooh man i've been there's been a bunch uh the good, the bad, and the ugly was the first one, 2001 at Daytona. You know, my brother wins, and Dale gets, Dale loses his life. And it was a hell of a race, and everything we promoted happened. We said it was going to be a big one, or was. So that very first race right out of the box was like, wow, this is fun, uh, with, with the exception of Dale losing his life. Then some of the amazing finishes, I, I, I can't even, I, you know, I'd have to sit down and, and go through my archives and think about that, but just... The, the race at Darlington between Ricky Craven and uh, and Kurt Busch, uh, what an amazing race that was. Uh, such a close finish. It's such a tough track. Uh, some of the short tracks, Carl Edwards bumping Kyle Busch out of the way, Dale Jr. and Kyle Busch, uh, you know, having a run in. I enjoy what I've done so much. And, you know, I, I think every race is kind of fun, some more than others. There's been uh, the dominance of Martin Trex a couple of years ago at uh, in the 600 at Charlotte. 392 laps out of 400 that's amazing just those kind of those kind of moments you know that stick out in my mind but there, there are plenty more of them uh you know when park won the rockingham back in 01 uh, in, in one of dale's cars and then Kevin harvey gets in a 29 car and he wins and uh, just those kind of things stick out in my mind almost every race to me is kind of fun and different and unique and there are some it's not so exciting, but for the most part, I enjoy all of it. And you touched on it, D.W., with the 2001 Daytona 500. I mean, in many ways, the first call you had to make was probably the toughest. To know that you guys could pull that off and do a broadcast like that, nothing was going to ever be as difficult as that first one, right? Well, and we were rookies. You know, Larry and I were rookies, and we're in there with Mike Joy. And Foxes is their first, you know, first time Fox has done NASCAR. And so there were a lot of firsts, a lot of things that we did that we didn't that we did right, that we didn't even know it. Uh, it wasn't until, <laughs> until, until later on we look back and say, yeah, well, we did that right anyway. But it, it was an amazing, amazing day. A, a day, of, you know, it's almost 20 years ago, and it, every day I say, I can almost recall that whole race and and what happened and before, during, and after, and just, you know, what an impact that had. At your announcement at Bristol to tell the world that this was going to be your last season, DW, you said something really interesting. I'm going to read it to you. You said, I have the knowledge. I have the experience. 
I don't sit at home Monday through Thursday twiddling my thumbs. I talk to crew chiefs. I talk to drivers. I know about the data they have. I know about the technology they have. Was that in response to you hearing whispers from people who say, you know, how often do we see this guy around? How well can he really say he knows these guys at age 72? Was that kind of your answer to them? Yeah. Yeah, I hear, you know, I hear every, well, not every day, but I hear a lot about not being relevant. And, and that really aggravates me because one thing I, I, I really at work hard at and have most of my television career is trust. And so when I talk to a Chad Knauss or Cole Pern or Rodney Childers, or Todd, I, I don't care whomever I talk to, I don't blab, oh, well, I was talking to Todd Gordon or, well, I was talking to Cole Pern. Uh, I've never been that way. I call guys every week, say, you know, what happened, what's going on. I've been in the shops enough to know the equipment they use. I know how to use it. I could build a car by my, I don't, I, if, if I had to, I believe if they challenged me against just about anybody I can think of, I believe I could build a better car by myself than anybody in that garage area. I know about full down machines, dynos. Uh, I, 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 I lived in that world and you don't have to touch it and feel it and sit in it every day to know how it operates and how it works. Uh, I rely a lot on people. Larry does a great job of information. My brother, when he had his team, there's just so many ways of knowing and keeping in touch without literally having to do it. I know what a car feels like when it handles right. I know what it feels like when it handles wrong. We go to the same damn racetracks year after year after year. It's one of the things that drives me crazy. We go to the same place to do the same things over and over and over again, and you're always trying to think of something new and different to to bring to to the fan at home to pique their interest and uh, and to get them involved and to make them you know wonder why we do what we do. So, yeah, I, I get annoyed about that. I get annoyed about hearing it. I, I'm I'm so involved, more involved than ever have been before. But let me tell you, and you know this. You see a whole lot more outside of that racetrack than you do when you're down there in the garage working on those cars. I, it's it's what I call the blind obvious. When I was down there in the garage all the time working on the cars, everything's going on around me. I didn't realize. I get up in that TV booth and where I can see the whole garage, whole field, the whole shooting match. I, I see things I never I never realized were going on, and, and I've been around it long enough, and I, I feel like I know how to explain that, express that. And, uh, and I always like to say entertain and educate, and that's, that's what I try to do, and I, I feel like I've been pretty successful at it. But one thing that I'm curious about, because this is true for me, DW, I've been covering NASCAR for not nearly as long as you've been around it, but I think this is my 17th full season. I've noticed that it's harder for me to relate to the new generation of drivers. People who are my age, or people like Matt Kenseth and Dale Jr., who have now left the Cup Series, it's harder for me kind of covering kids who were born in the 1990s and later. So I'm wondering, for you, two generations removed now from some of these kids that raced, how does that impact you where maybe you don't relate to these guys as well as you could when you were immediately into the booth after stepping out of the car in 2001? Yeah, I, I, I know how you feel. You know, social media is a big part of uh, what the what the young young guys and young drivers and people in the sport rely on today, uh, you know, when you go to Martinsville and and you you know somebody's ticked off at somebody, say, well, I'll text him tomorrow. I see. What in the hell is this texting thing? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, you're going to text him tomorrow once you go talk to him. Or if you ask somebody, you you can be talking to someone on the phone or whatever, and you say, "Well, did you talk to him?" Oh, yeah, I talked to him yesterday. No, you didn't. You text him yesterday, which they. You know, in their world, that means they talk to each other. So it, it is different. I'm old school. There's one thing that never changes, the mentality of a driver. That never changes. 
Uh, I know when a driver does something, it was an accident. I know when the driver does something was intentional. I know when the driver gets pissed off. They hired me to be a driver analyst. That's what Fox hired me to do. They hired Larry McCrimmon to be a crew chief analyst. And they hired Mike Joy to be a, our leader. And so I try to stick to what I know. And, and I know drivers. I know how they think. Uh, I know what they want. Uh, I know I know when Kyle Bush complains about something, that's just Kyle Bush and his way of, of letting me know that he doesn't or does like something. The programs they use, they sit and look at their computers. They go to simulators. They do a lot of things I never had to do. But that's because that's what they're in. That's what that's what they're hired to do. They're hired to be the best driver they can possibly be. I was the best driver I could possibly be, but I was a damn crew member. I had to work on the car. If they wanted me, to, if, if all else failed, I'd have to take hauler and drive the damn hauler to the track. <laughs> in my day, in my day, and I say this all the time, but it's the truth. Everybody on my team was a generalist. They could do anything. You need somebody to change a tire, I can do it. You need somebody to gas, I'll do it. Now everybody's a damn specialist. You know, especially, they got a damn interior specialist. And so, you know, every everything is so specialized. That's why when you go to Hendrick Motorsport, there's 600 people that work over there. And Junior Johnson's, and when I had my own team, we won races with 15 people because we all helped each other. We all did each other. You know, we all could help. We all worked on the car. And uh, now it's just a shop full of engineers and specialists and uh, they all they're all in there protecting themselves the engineers don't want you to do anything to the car until they approve it the crew chief sometimes his hands are tied the driver he just sits there and looks at the damn computer screen all day it's a different world we live in and it's not just in racing it's you know, life in general, it's just a different world we live in. Your relationship with NASCAR Brass, I know that early in your broadcasting years, you butted heads, I'm sure, with Bill Jr. and with Brian yep. France. When you announced your impending retirement from broadcasting, the NASCAR executives greeted your retirement with graciousness and great respect. What's your relationship like now with NASCAR leadership? Is it my imagination, or does it seem like it's improved a little here in the, the last few years? <laughs> you know that song, I Fought the Law and the Law Won? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I would I would say that's kind of where I am. <laughs> I guess. Listen, the, you you know, just like I, you want to be respected, you want your opinion to be respected. You want people to when you speak, you want people to listen. I have fallen into a category or a situation where hear me now, believe me later, because I say things. I said things five years ago that people just oh he's just that's just DW. Then they come true. And, and I think that's that, that's kind of how I felt with NASCAR leadership. You get kind of worn down battling with whether it's a, a you know a rivalry with another driver or uh, in, in some cases even battling with NASCAR. They're going to come on. They're going to win every time. And I guess at some point in your career, you say, okay, I'm just beating this drum and nobody's listening but me. So David Hill, my my former boss, he always puts it in the best of terms. I I think, and I think he was right. He said, if you owned a restaurant. And you stood outside that restaurant and said, don't come in here. The food sucks. Don't come in here. This food is no good. And I wouldn't eat here. I'd find me another place to eat. Well, then you're going to go out of business. You don't ever want to be the guy that killed the, the, the goose that laid the golden egg. And you don't want to be the guy that tells everybody how bad it is. got to kind of try to find somewhere in the middle. I, I give them the benefit of the doubt now, maybe more than ever. Uh, when, when they say things, do things, and I don't agree with it. Uh, rather than jumping up and saying I don't agree with it, I kind of sit back and wait and see how it goes. So 
I've mellowed. Uh, my approach is mellowed. I try not to rock the boat too bad. I still have a tendency to ask why. I still get accused of being a little bit negative every now and then. But overall, I've, I've tried to I've tried to be a good team player and let things kind of play out the way NASCAR thinks they will and see if they're right or not. At Bristol, Mike Helton said that from a NASCAR fan's perspective, Daryl made me more of a NASCAR fan than I thought I ever would be. What did it mean for you to hear that from him? Well, Mike is one of my best. He's, he's one of my best friends and has been for ever since I've known him. Mike Helton is a guy that understands the sport. He understands the people in the sport. And he understands the frustrations of the sport. And uh, Mike is a wise, he's very wise and, and has a lot of knowledge. And he's someone you can sit down and have a conversation with. And unlike some of the past leaders, it's not like what's in it for you, but, uh, you know, how can I help you see it? How can we look at this in, in, uh, in a different way and think about how we have to approach things? One of the things that's hardest for any competitor, I think, to, to embrace is they make rules for everybody. They don't make rules for me, and they don't make rules for the other guy. They make rules for everybody. And a lot of times those rules for everybody don't didn't, didn't necessarily accommodate what you're trying to do or, or what you're doing. And so there are things that you have to kind of learn as you go. Look, I lost Rookie of the Year in 1973. This is going back a long way. And you know why I lost Rookie of the Year that year? I had to bet I won the most money. I, won the most, I had the best finishes. I'd done everything right. But you know who chose Rookie of the Year that year? Reporters, the media voted on it? The, no, at the time it was the NASCAR executives. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and I, I had worse made a you. mistake. <laughs> I'd made a mistake of, uh, of asking why a few too many times. Two years ago on this podcast, DW, you talked about a story with Richard Childress where he took issue with you giving a team grade and, Ooh, and let yeah. you know about it. At your Bristol address, you told us, hey, look, anybody who's done TV as long as I had, you're always going to look back and say, hey, maybe I shouldn't have said that or, or done that. Was the Childress thing, I guess, the worst blowback you've ever gotten for things you've said? Or, and what's the biggest regret of maybe something you said on air, whether you heard about it or not? Oh, look, the worst thing you can have is, a, is, first of all, a driver call you, and second of all, a driver uh, knocking on your co coach door <laughs> and wanting in to come in and have a conversation. And and probably the third worst of all is when an owner like Richard Childers confronts you about something you had said or something that had happened that, that, that was, you know, hurt him. That That's the one thing. I love live TV. I, I, I don't like taping anything. I don't like rehearsing anything. I like it live. I like it. You ask me a question, I give you an answer. Not let me think about that. But with that said, it can also get you in a lot of trouble. It's like watching a wreck, and and you haven't seen a replay yet, and so you just see you 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 make a judgment call about what you think happened. Then you back it up, and you say, oh well, there was a cause, and that was just the effect. That's the way live TV is. You say something about someone or about a situation. And sometimes you, you, you'd like to be able to take it back, but you can't because it's, it's, it, it's already out there. I said something about Jimmy Johnson Sunday that after I thought about it, it wasn't the right thing to say, but Adam Alexander asked about Suarez and, and Jimmy, who would, who would win a race first? And, and my response was, well, Suarez is too aggressive and Jimmy's not aggressive enough. That's probably, in hindsight, wasn't the right thing to say. I, I, I think Jimmy is... I have a lot of respect for the man. Seven championships, 83 wins. I have a lot of respect for him. And out of that respect, you should not say something like that. So that was that was just an incident that happened Sunday. 
didn't think much about it at the time, but looking back on it, I said, well, maybe that wasn't the right thing to say. And that, and you have that all the time. You'll, you'll accuse someone of, you know, causing a wreck or you'll accuse someone of being too aggressive or something happening. You know, you, you look at something, you have an initial reaction and then you kind of go back and look at it again or study a little bit or see a couple of replays, you realize you're wrong. So I think that's the biggest thing you have to do is when you're doing TV and you make a mistake, you just got to say, hey, I was wrong about that and, and move on. You can't linger on it. Another thing you said uh, a couple years ago, DW, you said that your group at Fox sometimes gets accused of having too much fun on yep. air. Is that a fair criticism? Well, I, look, I didn't go to journalism school. <laughs> uh, you know, people people said, well, he's not even a journalist. No, I'm not. I'm a damn race car driver, <laughs> and I'm a race fan. Because, you know, sometimes I get carried away, and I'll start pulling for, you know, oh, man, I hope so-and-so wins this race, or, man, Denny Hamlin was upset with me at Sonoma a couple, three years ago when he and Tony Stewart had a little go right at the end of the race. And, and, and Denny called me and said, I don't know what kind of TV personality you think you are, but you were pulling for Tony Stewart. And I'm thinking to myself, damn right I was. <laughs> and I, it's and his last realized, season. I want him to win. <laughs> yeah, I want him to win. You know, I thought it was cool. And you know, you'll have those situations. And, and look, I've weathered it for 19 years and uh, gotten through most of it without too much trouble. Have you given them any input on who you might want to replace you or who should replace you? Assuming they do a, a three-man booth, which maybe they won't. Yeah, I, so far, I mean, I asked out every week who's going to take my place and and so far every week they've said we don't have anybody so uh and i think there is a chance it could be a two-man booth in the future i've always thought that wasn't a bad idea you know jeff gordon and i were in the booth together and he he says something and he takes a word right out of my mouth that's the problem you have with two drivers i think a driver a crew chief and owner that's a good combination but when you put a couple of drivers in a booth together they they think alike they pretty much respond the same ways and a lot of times early on, I had I had trouble because Jeff would take my thought and they would ask him what he thought. And here I stand. What am I supposed to do? Agree or disagree? Well, I I don't want to agree. But I don't want to say, well, you're right, Jeff. Well, you're right. Jeff. Well, you're right. Jeff. So I had a tendency to oh, maybe look in a different direction or maybe even disagree. And I, and I think that's, that's a bit of a challenge when you have two drivers in the booth together, particularly two good, knowledgeable drivers. I've always liked a crew chief owner, a crew chief, a driver, and, a, and Mike Joy, Mike's, you know, Mike's the car owner. I was a driver, and Larry was a crew chief. That's the way we approached it, and I thought it worked pretty well for a long, long time. And I love working with Jeff Gordon. We've had, in the beginning, it was a little awkward, but we've really grown to be good buddies, and we have fun together. And uh, I've, been, I've actually enjoyed uh, this year particularly. It's just awkward at the start because you were feeling each other out for how to interact on air. I, I was afraid to rib him. I was afraid to make how many wins you got here are. You got to be kidding. You know, those kind of things that we do now that he, he fires back. Uh, and when we first started, uh, he was like a lot like some of us were. I, I think as time goes by, he was afraid he was going to offend someone, make somebody mad, say something wrong. And uh, I told him, I said, dude, sometimes we're the only ones that know that we said something wrong or that didn't go the way we had planned. The people at home don't know that. We know it, and that makes us feel like sometimes we're inadequate, but in fact, it's no big deal. You just kind of deal with it and move on. If and when there's a need for them to add another driver to the booth, when you look at the current crop, I mean, I'm sure you see this like many of us do when Fox brings drivers in on the Xfinity broadcast. It seems like there are many good candidates among the current crop of active drivers to make that transition that you made. Yeah. Uh, well, we've already in-house got some pretty good people. You know, uh, uh, Regan Smith does a nice job. And uh, we got McMurray and, uh, you know, Ricky Craven. And I, I, I think we've got some pretty talented, knowledgeable guys 
uh, people I think in the future, Kevin Harvick will be a star. I think Joey will be a star. Brad, there's a bunch of guys that we've seen already, you know, go in the in the booth and and just fall right in there and and, and seem to get it. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't take a lot for them to to become TV stars. But here's the thing that everybody has to realize, and it was something I had to realize. It's one thing to go up there occasionally and be a guest. It's something else to do it every damn week. And, and when you've done it every week, I've missed one show in 19 years. And I had my gallbladder out, and I missed a bud shootout about three or four years ago, I think it was. That's the only show I've ever missed. I've never missed a pre-race show. I've never missed a race in 19 years. And the reason I'm telling you that is because sometimes I say this, but it's tongue-in-cheek. I, when I was a driver and everybody said it looked easy, I said, I'll make it look easy. Well, when you do TV and everybody says, well, anybody could do that, that's a compliment. That is not, I, I never felt like when somebody says that about you or to you, that it's that they're insulting you. It's a compliment that you can do what we do week in and week out, going to the same places year in and year out, and make it look easy. Because you know you have to do homework, you have to prep, you got to be ready. You know, you don't just show up on Sunday and do a race. You have production meetings, you have uh, NASCAR meetings, uh, you study, you know, you got your notes, uh, you got researchers that are helping you with the nuggets. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into every race every week. And so it, it, it's a compliment when somebody says to me, well, it looks pretty easy. Because I know, and I think anybody in the industry knows, it ain't easy. Your attendance and consistency and commitment there certainly are, are laudable to have only missed one race in 19 years. It's very impressive, DW. When you look back on that career, how do you feel you impacted NASCAR broadcasting? Do you have a legacy that you want to be remembered for? Did you accomplish everything you wanted to accomplish during your career on air? Well, I, I, I learned early on that you, know, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. Uh, and you have to be willing to make mistakes. My way of doing TV, and I've told people this from the day I started, before I was ever a full-time analyst, it was just like I sitting on a bar stool with a bunch of my buddies. They don't know a damn thing about racing. I'm trying to explain it to them. That's the way I've approached racing ever since I've been in it. And sometimes the simplest things that we take for granted that we think everybody knows, we know it, but other people don't. Uh, the language. I've tried to be, first of all, a race car driver because that's what I know. That's who I am. And second of all, a, a TV analyst. And third of all, just a regular race fan. I, I approach every race just like I'm a race fan. I try to look for things that I think a fan would think fun and funny. Uh, I try to approach things the way a, a fan needs to know and things that would he didn't know uh, that might be interesting to him. That's the way I've tried to approach this whole time. I'm, I'm not a trained professional. I've just done, I've just been around this sport my whole time. I've always had a gift for gap. I've always been able to explain and, and in a fun kind of way. So I think you have to have fun. I think that's important, but there's a time to be serious. And then there's a time to be silly. I think the balance we have is perfect. You know, a race is not a, it's not a news show. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a show. And that's, that's what we did way, but you know, why do you think we paint the cars different colors and different uniforms and, do all the different things we do is to, you know, to be appealing and attractive to the fan and to make, to be interesting. And I always, I just, every week I go in the TV booth, I, this is a whole new show for me. And there's something going to happen today that we can laugh about or something that's going to happen today that we can 
you know, get dig deep into and explain. And, uh, you know, that's just, that's just how I do it. And my legacy is somebody says, well, DW told me this, or DW said, do it this way, or I do it this way because that's the way DW does. It's like boogity, boogity, boogity. Look, you got something better, bring it. You think there's a better way to start a damn race? You just bring it on and we'll find out. That's how I do it. Obviously, you've spent your entire life in racing, and you talked to Bristol about that that also included your family spending their entire lives in racing, and now you've got two girls who are growing up and married. I know you're a grandparent now, and certainly stepping away from broadcasting will allow you quality time that will mean less racetrack time, which is good for your family, but I'm sure for you, I was surprised when you said at Bristol that retiring from broadcasting would actually be harder from you than retiring from driving. Is that because of the, there's a sense of permanence here that yes, you're getting a little bit more of your life back, but there's a part of your life that is kind of ending in a different way. Well, I've never been on the same team for 19 years. And so, you know, you, you're on a team, at least in my case, I was on a team five, six years and it's time, you know, you want to move on and try something different. So I've been dealing with the same, pretty much the same group of people in, in my TV career ever since I started. That, that's that's family man and, and when i and, and stevie i tell stevie uh my wife i say you know you want to go to race no i spent 30 years sitting on a toolbox i don't have any desire to go to another race i don't know how i'll feel it you know uh, this may not be answering your question but i don't know if i'll go to another race or not the hardest thing to do and most people know this that's been in the sport is go to a track and you don't have anything to do you go to a track and you don't have a team you don't have a car you don't have a job. You don't have. You're just there to show up. That's a hard road to hoe. At least it always has been for me. So I'm gonna miss what I've done. Look, I started racing when I was 12 years old, and I, I said then, I say now. I've ever since I was 12 years old, I got up on Sunday morning and held on to something. I held on to a steering wheel for most of my life. I held on to a microphone the last 19 years of my life, and I've held on to a dream that someday I'd win a cup race and someday I'd win a, a championship. And when I got in the TV booth, it never happened, but someday it might, that I might win an Emmy for being an outstanding broadcaster. Uh, and so I've always held on to something. I've always had dreams about what I wanted to accomplish while I was holding on to whatever I was holding on to. And the Lord's been good to me. He's blessed me with a, two great careers. Uh, I get to retire a second time. A beautiful wife will be married 50 years in August. Two beautiful daughters. I have a granddaughter. I, I guess I think we time out. And I don't mean that we call time out. We time out. We run our course. I told David Hill when I started this job 19 years ago, I got a pretty good line of BS, but people <laughs> may get tired of it eventually. <laughs> well, I've never gotten tired of having the chance to speak with you. You do have the gift of gab, and you've always been gracious with your time. Thank you so much, DW. This is, again, another insightful conversation. I really appreciate your time, as always. All right, pal. Anytime. Thanks again to DW for his time and his perspectives, which I don't always agree with, by the way. You can check my social media musings about the vortex theory, and I'm much less of a conspiracy theorist than him. But again, I appreciate DW's willingness to always have an opinion and to share it with the world. Thanks as well to Megan Engelhart at Fox Sports for helping set this up. She is the consummate PR professional, and I always appreciate her help. The NASCAR and NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. If you can leave a rating and review, that really helps us out in spreading the word, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. It's been a while since we've had a review on Apple Podcasts, so if you like what you're hearing, please 
tell us and tell the world about it. As always, you can send me feedback on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.